Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. Yeah, we're off, we're off, we're off, it's started. Oh my God. Uh, it's just, it is, I mean, I literally got up, it's, uh, it's opened a curtain and then the minute went by and now we're started. Okay, right, fucking calm the fuck down. Helm, okay. Um, oh, it's, uh, my name's Nick. This is... Nathaniel Metcalf. You're listening to Nick and Nathaniel Metcalf's uh, fan club. club. Um, we haven't we haven't really um, explained this. I've got my fan on. Can you hear my fan? No, you're all right. But you need a fan on. I'm sorry, fucking fan club. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, like fan on. It's fucking f- f- more like fuck off. Yeah. Um, yes. Clever. It's so fucking... I'm not going to state the fucking obvious, but it is hot. When we say it's Nick and Nat's fan club, just, we haven't probably reiterated this in maybe... This is our 100th episode. Yeah! Episode 100 that we've both done together. This is the proper, official 100th episode. The centenary episode. It is the official 100th episode. It's not our 100th episode together. It's our 99th episode together. There was that one that you did with Hayley Campbell. Right, yeah, yeah. Was it only one? Yeah, it's just one. Uh, and then there was that other one where I turned up late. But apart from that... <laughs> apart from that, if this is our 99th... I mean, this is great, isn't it? Because what with that one that I did with Mark Simmons and uh, that one that you did with Hayley Campbell mm. and then, you know, the, the number that we've done together... We can celebrate 100 episodes three times. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So you get to have, it's like the, the trilogy. The t- a trilogy centenary. Yeah. Um, um, uh, Paul Anker's daughter is married to Jason Bateman. There'll be loads of those fun facts coming up throughout the two hours. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's just, just important to stipulate that it's called Nick and Nat's Fan Club. It's not our fan club. You know? It's not oh. like a club of people that come on and tell us about how much they bloody love us. Uh, it was initially going to be that, but literally none of our guests have ever heard of us. No. Um, it's not only about halfway through the chat that uh, that they'll say something like, well, you, as a performer, um, uh, I take it very seriously. And then Nat will say, well, we're... We're comedians. And then they go, oh, are you? All right. <laughs> 45 minutes into the chat, the, the, the penny drops, and they realise, you know, we're legitimate kind of, um, you know, minor celebs, I suppose, in a way. We're real, we're real people, real people. Well, we're better than real people, aren't we, Nat? Um, because yeah, well, uh, we've been on stage. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's just important to, it's just important to say it's not... It's not a show about, like, people being fans of us, Nick and Nat's fan club. It's just about, you know, stuff that we are fans of. I think it's just important because we haven't done that in a while. There's been 100 episodes and we probably haven't done that in, as I say, 80 episodes. We haven't really stipulated what it's all about. Yeah. It's not about people being fans of us. It's about, it's about what we are fans of. And maybe we'll ask our guests this week what they're a fan of. Yeah, that's, that's fine, Maybe. But um, <laughs> you know, we won't we won't clutter it up too much. I mean, they're not. I find it almost unbelievable that they that, that most people come on a podcast 
yeah. and they haven't done like the bare bones just research on yeah. who these two people are. Do you know what sure. I mean? It's not, it's not just called fan club. It's called Nick and Nat's fan club. If they might like, come on thinking, oh, I, I should become a fan of theirs if I'm going on because uh, that's obviously what the show's about. So I'll, I'll do a bit of research into some of the stuff they've done. Just, just do, do a couple of, couple of Googles. Just do a couple of fucking Googles, innit? Just fucking do, do the most basic Wikipedia search. Find out the fact that we are fucking worth talking to. And then maybe, you know, if I were them, I'd prepare a couple of questions of my own. Yeah, sure. Wait, maybe, uh, maybe ask us what we're a fan of for a change. Where, 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 did, uh, where did that first spark of a dream uh, set fire in your heart, Nick, to become, you know, a mm. national treasure? You know, just stuff like that. I mean, just like basic questions, you know, to find out what makes me tick. That's what I would do. If I was if I was a guest coming on Nick and Nat's fan club, I would prepare a whole bunch of questions for Nick just mm-hmm. to find out, you know, how he how he develops as an artist, stuff like that. Anyway, I'm just saying it's not it's too much to ask for. So basically we just talk about the other thing is people say that we do repeat ourselves a lot. Um, and by people, I mean not one person has ever really said <laughs> that. I'm just trying to sort of like, um, uh, I'm doing what Donald Trump does when he makes up imaginary friends and he says, oh, people tell me all the time about stuff. And you go, yeah, no one. But this is, uh, yeah, it's like uh, people say all the time, you know, you do repeat yourselves a lot. It's just like, yeah, but it's what we are fans of. Yeah. These are like lifelong passions. You can't expect us to renew them every week. No, or have different ones. New if, ones. If, if I was a fan of something for one week, I wouldn't say I'm that much of a fan. It'd be more like, I've got a passing interest. Filling time. Um, this, this won't... Uh, I mean, what, what's, what's good is you won't pick up on this at home, but the sun is so bright and hot that my face looks like I'm sort of... got this sort of beautiful sheen to it. I look slightly angelic and like I've had like a facelift or something. You look like um, Patrick Stewart at the beginning of X Men Three. Yes. Fan club. That's fan club. Well, the thing is that you guys won't really know. Is I get the sun in my living room in the morning, and Matt gets it in the afternoon. So whereas uh, the sun is shining in Nat's face now, sun isn't shining in my face. But what it does mean is that my room is like a fucking sauna. I am so hot. I feel like, and also I've just drank so much Pepsi Max Cherry so quickly. I feel like I'm going to be sick at any minute. Um, I've just uh, drank two pints of squash. Double concentrate, wasn't it? Double concentrate, yeah. Fucking double our bastards. Hey, what are we? I am. Um, oh, no, I'm alright. Um, sorry, I just drank too much, so much Pepsi Max cherry. I tell you what, I did. What did you do? Oh, I've got it here. Um, I um, I tell you what, I've been a fan of over the last two days. About six months ago. <laughs> about six months ago, before the global pandemic started. Oh yeah, I think I've had some of that. Um. I ordered from Japan some uh, cup noodles. I watched um, I watched uh, some people in Japan going through Japanese supermarkets, and they basically were trying out what the best instant noodles were. And they like pot noodles, right? I yeah. don't understand why pot noodles are so disgusting. 
because cup noodles are del- right. So about six months ago, I ordered some cup noodles. They're curry flavored cup noodles, and I saw them reviewed it, and they were like the the highest rated instant noodle in a cup, right? On this show, uh, curry cup noodles. I've got them over there. Um, well, I, I don't. Uh, six months ago, I ordered them. They uh, got lost in transit, so they didn't arrive. And I had to write to them say they haven't arrived yet. And they were like, oh, I'm sorry. Um, we'll send you some more. Anyway, they arrived yesterday, right? Three cups. <laughs> so I've waited six months for yeah. three cup noodles, which are basically the same exact size as a pot noodle. Um, and um, I had one yesterday, and it was the nicest thing I've ever eaten. And then I've had two just before I came on, because they're sort of like, they're like a snack. And I hadn't really eaten that much yesterday other than one cup noodle. Anyway, I don't have any left now, so if I want more, I've got to wait another six months, I imagine. Why did you only get three? That's how they sold them, and I had so many noodles in my cupboard, I thought, I don't want to over-noodle myself. Yeah. But, yeah, fucking hell. They're absolutely delicious. They've got dehydrated potato in them, which sounds sort of like a bit gross. But you know, like how, like, in um, uh, uh, Vindaloo, you get potatoes and stuff. Um, yeah, it's like this curry, noodles, potato, and sort of like dehydrated, I think it's beef, but all of the uh, ingredients are in Japanese. Um Oh my god, they're fucking delicious! Just delicious, and I've eaten. And why? Them. Why are they better than pot noodles? What's in them? The noodles are lovely. They're like little silky kind of like ribbons. They're delicious. Pot noodles always feel like they're underdone. Also, the flavour is sort of. I don't know whether it's because of. Um, I don't know whether it's because of kind of like uh, regulations or what, but they always feel sort of like under seasoned. And also, they're kind of like. I think it's a, like it's a weird invention, right? Because noodles. I suppose like spaghetti is a noodle, um, but it's an Italian noodle. But noodles are really sort of like, you know, Eastern. So I just think it's a weird sort of like, like pot noodles are really British. Mm. But like, kind of, presumably, a, is pot noodle like a rip-off of a Japanese cup noodle, do you think? Um, maybe. Maybe they're just copying it. I don't see why. Apparently, pot noodles have dried rice noodles in them. Mm. I quite like it. I mean, I haven't had a pot noodle for a while, but I'm not... Well, what, what's your opinion on a super noodle? Super noodles are fine, but they're not really the same. Super noodles are... Well, do you know what? I had some super noodles recently, just to sort of like go... I haven't had super noodles in a while. Not since I've been eating ramen. Ramen noodles, instant ramen noodles... I mean, ramen noodles are different from. <laughs> I tell you what, I did. I rewatched that fucking episode of um, Chef's Table, ramen. I think it's episode four, season three. Oh God. Oh, it's delicious. Um, so the ramen episode, it's really interesting. But um, uh, yeah, so super noodles—they're like a cheap sort of noodle. Pot noodles. I like really British, but I think that they're a weird thing, and I don't always, I don't think the flavour is that good. And also, I just, I, well, I don't like them, right? I don't particularly like pot noodles. And cup noodles, they're like this, re- I mean, I've only had the curry ones, but um, 
they're so sort of like the flavor is so sort of like addictive and um moorish oh yeah yeah it's just amazing and then you get these ramen packs which are sorts of like super noodles but the um the noodles are really sort of springy well they're not it's not that they're thick, but they are. They're, they're, they're sort of they're thicker than uh, than super noodles. It's not that they're thick; they're just sort of like sp uh, spongy. There's a bite to them. They're sort of like springy and chewy, and just really great. And then the the but all of the sauce that it comes with are like ultra hot. Like they're so sort of like spicy. Um, but because they're so spicy, they're sort of addictive because you can become like addicted to chilies and stuff like that. Um, it lets off sort of like endorphins in your brain. Um, uh, yeah, so these fucking ramen noodles are great. Anyway, these cup noodles are the nicest. They're not, they're not that spicy, but they're just sort of like more. Anyway, that's what I've been a fan of. <laughs> and what Chef's Table? Chef's Table is still good. I haven't seen the last couple of series, actually, because I haven't had Netflix in fucking ages. But, um, yeah, it just did remind me of um, how much I love Chef's Table. Anyway... What have you been a fan of? Uh, first rule of fan club, tell your friends about fan club. Second rule of fan club. Please, for the love of God, tell your friends. Yeah, tell your friends. Pot noodles have dried rice noodles in them. All right, that's, uh, I thought you knew that, but in actual fact, it's just Natalie letting us know on Zoom. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, I was, uh, just reading it. Just reading it. Um, so what have you been a fan of this week, Nathaniel? I watched four films this week, Nick. Fucking hell. Hello, four. How do you find the time? Um, these are the four. Hang on, you're back at the cinema now, right? Yeah, I'm at work. I'm at work a couple of days a week. It's all right, yeah. It's sort of getting used to it and being, you know, um, you know, it's all socially distanced and it's sort of funny. But you've also got to try to, there's a lot of things where you go, oh, I've touched a thing now and I've touched, I've got to touch a thing. And, and But then you've just got to, you've sort of got to just get used to it, I think. And just, I'm constantly hand sanitizing myself. My hands are all like um, red raw from where I sort of burnt my hands on hand sanitizer using it so much. Um, it's all right, you know, I'm kind of getting a bit more used to it. It's sort of a funny feeling after being indoors for so long. But, but um, I, you know, as soon as you start, I'm kind of back in the swing of it, really. But are you actually screening films? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're showing like um, um, mainly lots of... There's a couple of new movies. Uh, there's a, a film out this week called Baby Teeth, and there's Proxima, which I saw a few months ago, before lockdown, which is showing now. She's an Eva Green, Matt Dillon movie about sort of her relationship with her daughter. She's a sort of a mother who's going into space, and it's sort of about uh, the role kind of women have in having to try and have a career and motherhood, but her job is that she's an astronaut. Um, and... Uh, yeah, there's a few new bits and pieces out. There's a Seth Rogen film out, American Pickle. Yes, is that, have you seen that? No, I haven't seen anything yet. I haven't seen anything new yet. Um, so is there an audience? Are people turning up? Yeah, I think so. It's, uh, I think it's going to be kind of slow starting and people getting back to it and getting used to it. But I think at the minute, I think there's like the audiences are so, I mean, in a way, now's probably the best time to go because the audiences are small, so you're bound to be socially distanced. And are they all socially distanced? It's like every other... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think in comp even if it was at capacity, I think it's 
you know, it's almost, it would be less than 50%, even when it's full. Uh, I think the idea is you have two seats either side of you. That if you buy a seat, I think it automatically fills out two either side of you, so you can't be that close to her. Um, so it's all, a lot of it's about pre-booking and things. So if you book a seat, um, if you're a family, you can sit together or whatever, if you're, if you all live together. But otherwise, I think if you book a single ticket, we'll just book a seat and then already book out those seats around you. Right. So the idea is you do stick to where you've been for the seat you've booked, if you know what I mean. So you, you work for a picture house. So is picture house central open? Yeah, I think they're all open. I think they're all open. Are cinemas in general open? I think most of them are now. I think things like Prince Charles opens like next month. And I think the BFI opens in October. Okay. I think they're all, they're all coming back. But they'll all be socially did. So I think a lot of it is now like, if you want to see something, I think especially somewhere like the BFI or perhaps Prince Charles as well. And, and in fact, every cinema I think is, the thing is that you sort of book ahead. So you know what you're doing. You don't have to get involved with tickets or anything. You've just got it all on your phone and you go in and yeah, um, you can just kind of, you know what seat you're in. You stick to the seat you're in. You shouldn't really have anyone around you. And, you know, in theory, I mean, it sort of feels weird and it feels like a bit of a, a bit of a luxury, you know, like, do we need to go to cinema? But at the same time, I think certainly what I've seen, it all seems very safe. And there's, I mean, definitely lots of effort to keep everything clean and, things being scrubbed and banisters and everything is being uh, disinfected all the time. Yeah. So, you know, it's like it's even things you touch is, will have been cleaned within the last sort of hour or something. It's all that. Yeah. Everything you could possibly. And it's also, there's just fewer people around at the minute anyway. So that you're likely that you will be socially distanced just by virtue of the audiences being small at the moment. Um, and I think that's been quite a good thing. I mean, and um, in the 26th, I think, is Tenet, which is the new Christopher Nolan film. Very... That's the thing they're sort of expecting to be. That's the sort of first big major release that's going to be happening since the cinema's a bit reopened. Has he done that in um, IMAX? Uh, yeah, I think so. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if IMAX are open. I guess they probably are. Must be. But, like, has he... I mean, you'd think that IMAX would be all right, wouldn't you? Because it's huge. Yeah. And it's staggered so steep. that yeah. even you're, Do you know what I mean? You're pretty much social distanced to row by row. Oh, all, all, all the cinemas will be, I think. I don't think there will be any that won't be socially distanced. Because you, you have to... Just, but like, IMAX is already sort of like predisposed to almost be socially distanced. So yeah, the, you're, not, you're not on the same level. It's, it's um, tiered, isn't it? So it's you're not... so uh, steep. But yeah. also, you can fit so many people in there. Um... Yeah. Okay. Tenet. Yeah. Um, I'm not like. I just I find it weird when they show you like the first five minutes of the film as a trailer. He, he always does that, doesn't he? He seems to have done that with all his movies. It's just like, but then you just got to sit through it again when you actually get to. The film. <laughs> I always find it. Oh, well, I can't remember. I remember going to see something, and it was like, we're going to show you nine minutes. It was something long like that of Dark Knight Rises or something with some other movie. And well, you go, this is weird. It shows you sort of like the whole Bane escaping from a plane. Hmm. They like show you a whole set piece. as like a trailer. Yeah. You go, I would have just rather waited. Didn't they also show the whole Joker heist at the beginning of The Dark Knight? I think they might have done, yeah. And he did it with um, Dunkirk. was in another movie I remember seeing like 
10 minutes of Dunkirk in something else. Yeah, I find that weird. But then I guess, I guess it's kind of, is it just sort of like being a little bit more true to the film rather than kind of like uh, cutting up a film and showing all the best bits? Mm. I go, hey, this, this bit's really tense. If you like that, then imagine watching like the whole film. I guess so. You're probably right. I mean, I'm sure it must be a thing that he's, because he does it so often, I guess it's a thing that he'd rather do than got a shortcut of bits of trailer, I guess, yeah. Also, does Christopher Nolan at this stage really need to advertise his films? No, but it'll be interesting to see what happens with this because it's a, it's a movie that was, you know, it's Warner Brothers' big movie, I think, for the year. And it's been due to open for months. It's finished. And it's almost, will audiences come back for it? Uh, so I think for their money, it was like their big release this year. Sure. And I guess a bit of a... Are they taking a risk by releasing it at all at the moment? Or so it'd be interesting who comes back and whether this will be the film that brings people back. But in a way, like Christopher Nolan's films, what I, you know, what I mean is like, yeah, you need to like tell people that they can go back to the cinema and all of that. I find that really interesting. I'm desperate to go to the cinema, basically, and um, yeah, I think it's interesting to get in your take on it because um, you work at a cinema, but. Um, going back to Christopher Nolan, I think sort of like all of his films sort of even more than someone well, I would say more than someone like Spielberg, where Spielberg seems to now I don't know if I'm talking about out my arse now, but like I feel like I feel like there's such a consistency to the tone of every single Christopher Nolan film that basically you know if you're going to like it or not by now Whereas the difference between Ready Player One and Bridge of Spies is like, I like that one, but I don't like that one. Whereas if you like um, The Prestige, you're probably going to like Inception and you're probably going to like Tenet and you're probably going to like Dunkirk and you'll definitely like the Dark Knight trilogy. And probably like the one that's the furthest away from him in terms of tone is probably Batman Begins which is like almost a genuine attempt to make a superhero film. Mm. And then as soon as he gets his sort of like way and he's proven himself to Warner Brothers, he goes, nah, I'm just going to make like a gangster film or a crime movie when he made The Dark Knight. And it's kind of like, it's sort of like a backwards, not a backwards step in terms of quality, but in terms of kind of like, he's gone right back into his comfort zone where he's kept everything very small and real world. I think that... I think that you can... T- I don't know. I just think that probably Spielberg... I'm just using Spielberg because he's sort of like the most... Uh, he's the most famous director on the planet, basically. Mm. Like his I films think- are sort of like so wildly different. You can tell that they're Spielberg. He has like Spielberg flourishes. They're all sort of like very sentimental and saccharine and all that. But in terms of subject matter, they're all wildly different. Although Christopher Nolan's wildly different. He's done superhero films. He's done a film about, you know, uh, 19th century magicians. He's done uh, a film about the Second World War. He's done, you know, uh, uh, a film about a guy that is living his life back... Well, no, the film's backward, well, whatever. But, like, he's done a film about dreams. So they're all, like, varied. All of his films are very varied. But They're all often quite, like... I mean, outside of something like Dunkirk, a lot of his films are basically kind of 
essentially kind of sci-fi or almost what would have been kind of B-movie subject matter, but taken very seriously, aren't they? They're often like, um, they sort of take themselves quite seriously as well. But Inception, Inception could almost be like a Fantastic Voyage type film. You know, yeah. where you've got like um, a team of people that are travelling into... I know it's like, that's about people travelling into someone's body and that's about travelling into people's dreams. But it's like, it is, like you say, like it's like a B-movie plot that he's sort of elevated into kind of like an A pitch. Yeah. I, I like the thing where he's, he's very kind of... He's all about the kind of cinema experience, isn't he? And he, uh, I like that more and more now because I think... So, so many films now feel like they're, you know, they're almost designed to be multi-platform things you can watch on your phone and because that's the sort of nature of the way people consume sort of visual content at the minute. Whereas I do like the idea that he's someone who is actively pushing against that or pushing against it to be a bit, no, it's go and see it in the cinema. It's a big screen thing. I've designed it to be on... You know, essentially, I guess more than most, he designs things to almost be on IMAX screens, and yeah, um, it's like it's all about spectacle, isn't it? Yeah, uh, but not in a not in sort of like a James Cameron or George Lucas way, where the actual technology overtakes the storytelling. Mm, yeah, and I think I, I think more and more, like I, I, um, I think I've had sort of problems with his films in the past. But now it's almost like he's one of the few last men standing, isn't he, that seem to be all about doing big spectacle films. And I, I sort of appreciate that more now. Well, there's fewer of them. He makes grown-up blockbusters, hmm. which is sort of... Um, I mean, like, no-one really does that. No-one does that. I, I'm not a fan. I mean, I thought Dunkirk was great. Um, hmm. But I find, like... I, you know, I've always, I've always said... I mean, I liked... I, I liked, hmm, I liked two, two out of three Batmans, but I liked them. I didn't love them. Yeah. And, you know, um, I, I almost prefer 50% of Batman versus Superman more than any of the Christopher Nolan stuff. But, um, but it's weird because it's kind of like, it's, it's one of those things where, you, where, and I don't think it's all the prestige. It's, I, don't, I don't know how many of his films I've actually seen at the cinema. I saw Inception at the cinema. <clears throat> It's just weird though. It's kind of like I'm not like this. Make I feel I find his films like leave me a little bit cold. And my my friend Chris was sort of because uh, I mentioned Chris last week or the week before. We were talking about um, Michael Mann and he mm. and he loved Michael. Mann, he loves Michael Mann, but he also said that he loves you know he loves Michael Mann, uh, Christopher Nolan, David Fincher, Terence Malick, and it's like. Stanley Kubrick, and it's like, yeah, exactly. All of those films, I can tell that they're great films, but those, all of those filmmakers, except for David Fincher, where he's 50-50 on, on, for me. Um, but all of those filmmakers, they sort of like, you can tell how incredible they are, but even someone like Stanley Kubrick like, leaves me really cold. Like, mm. I like the, my favourite Stanley Kubrick, probably The Shining, because I've seen it so many times, but I still haven't worked it out. And I still don't find it scary. So it's, it's not like a favourite film of mine. It's just kind of like my, maybe my favourite Stan Kubrick. But then on top of that, uh, my other favourite Stan Kubrick is the first half of Full Metal Jacket. And then... Yeah. But I prefer Starship Troopers. 
which is basically <laughs> the same film, right? Yeah, uh, but yeah, and all those all those filmmakers do feel like they've got something in common, don't they? And in fact, they're all in a way like someone like. But only when Chris pointed, only when Chris pointed it out did I make that connection. That those are all of his favourite filmmakers, mm-hmm. and then none of mine. I kind of just like you know, they, like, but not like I don't have a th- anything against them. It's just like just through watching a lot of their films, I've never really kind of like gone back there, except for like David Fincher. Mm-hmm. It's weird though, isn't it? When you think David Fincher and you go, what's the film that I've seen the most? Alien 3. <laughs> Which is definitely his worst film. But I've seen it so many times because you're just sort of like, you're constantly trying to work out what went wrong. It's like, it's like a puzzle box. I like, um, I think, I think that's been my problem with Christopher Nolan in general is that I sometimes find them a little bit too serious for their subject matter. And my favourite is um, The Prestige, I think, because it's sort of quite a silly idea and plays out quite like it's quite a silly film. <laughs> but I really like it. It sort of leans into it a bit more than the others. And I've but, always that was my problem with the Batman movies. It always felt like they were too embarrassed to be Batman films. Yeah. And, it was a bit, and I felt a bit like, just go for it if you're going to do it. It's not like... It's, it's, it's what it is. It's a Batman movie. It's, uh, but it's Christopher it's Nolan's take on Batman, right? Yeah. And you go, fine. Have like a run of comics. That's great. Mm-hmm. But you're uh, shepherding the Batman franchise for 10 years. Yes. Like, you're the only person who's going to make Batman films for 10 years. And it's kind of like, that's what I find exciting about what's happening now, is that, oh, fuck, we've got like, I'm, I would have had more Tim Burton films, right? Um, and then Joel Schumacher, and I hated those films. And I, I think, like, people, uh, you know, acknowledge the fact that Batman Forever isn't as... I mean, I, hate, I hated Batman Forever. I didn't even bother seeing Batman and Robin at the cinema. I think I saw that, like, four years after it came out on video. Um, hated Batman Forever. And it's just kind of like, you've got these people that are in charge of this franchise, and they're, they're doing it for such a long time. I would have lots more... Zack Snyder, Batman, and then you've got Robert Pattinson alongside that, and then you've got um, uh, Joaquin Phoenix uh, as Joker and sort of like a... I think that that's still really exciting, and it's kind of like you can like Joaquin Phoenix or you can not like Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, no, not, you can now have multiple Batman things, can't you, without confusing anyone? I think that, I think that Marvel have got this universe where... Every film looks the same. Um, it's kind of like their thing is that it's a consistent vision all the way through. And they hire directors to maybe like um, add a little bit of, uh, you know, like uh, Taika Waititi. It's like, um, yeah, right. It's got like elements of him in the film. But essentially you can put it alongside any of the other Marvel films and still recognise it's the same franchise. And so DC had a stab at doing that, whilst at the same time having like incredibly different feeling films. Like Wonder Woman felt classic. Suicide Squad was just like whatever the fuck that was. I mean, it was just, I mean, it was fucking awful. But um, but like it's, it, it was. It, I guess it was aiming to be sort of like, oh, I don't know. I don't even want to talk about that. But um, <laughs> but do you know what I mean? And so you got and you got Zack Snyder. And uh, Patty Jenkins and their visions are sort of like 
um, so different from each other. Like Wonder Woman is such a positive, uplifting film. Mm. And um, Zack Snyder's films are so sort of like bleak and sort of depressive. I think that it was weird because they were sort of championing the differences in their filmmakers whilst at the same time trying to create one huge universe. Yeah. And now that that hasn't worked, I think what DC really have going for them is the fact that they can do absolutely anything. I think that's it. I think that's what they were sort of doing by accident, weren't they? I know we said it before, but it's just that they've, that that's a better way of doing it for them because actually, as you say, there's no, there was no consistency, even though they had the same actor um, in Wonder Woman and Justice League, the characters were completely different. So it would have made more sense just to have a different Wonder Woman in Justice League because it was just like they were so different. But then you'd just go, yeah, well, it makes sense. It's two completely different franchises. Yeah. Instead, they've uh, they tried to make it all part of the same thing. And it sort of made less sense because it was just so at odds. And it's weird because it wasn't long ago that... Batman was Batman, and then they did Superman Returns, and that was a different franchise from the Batman franchise. It wasn't long ago that you could have these individual films. When they started sort of like tying them together at like the, the end stings of like the Marvel movies, people were like, oh my God, Tony <laughs> Stark has just turned up in The Incredible Hulk. What the fuck? Like people's minds were getting blown. And now well, that thing, wasn't it, with Man of Steel was initially... Like, when that first came out, it was almost seen as Christopher Nolan's Superman, wasn't it? And he well, introduced them. There's, um, there's a, a satellite uh, going around Earth, which has got Wayne Enterprises written on it. And it's the same logo from the Christopher Nolan universe. And you go, oh, they're tying it into it. And it's like, this Superman movie, you watch the, you watch fucking, you watch The Dark Knight, and, and you watch sort of like... Um, uh, Heath Ledger and it's all like grim and gritty and real and then you watch Russell Crowe flying around on a dragon and it's just like yeah this isn't do you know what I mean it's like it's so it's not the same universe I mean you could, um, and also we're talking a lot about comic books now I don't give a fuck about comic book movies um, I, just, I just don't um, so on that note let's play a song <laughs> Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. We're back. Um, yeah, I sort of like miss films that aren't about superheroes, you know. I know there are that exist, but like, so it was Steve Martin's birthday. Uh, yesterday, on Tuesday. So, to celebrate, I watched a Steve Martin film. Which one did you watch? I watched Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Oh, wow, I haven't seen that in years. I know, right? And I sort of watched it because um, it was sort of like the sort of film that used to be on at like six o'clock on a Saturday. Yeah. When we were growing up, you know. So it's like edited for TV. Um... It's quite a long film. It's like an hour and 50 minutes, nearly two hours, which for a comedy, mm. hmm, like, I, like, 
Netflix is a weird thing, isn't it? Because that Eurovision film came out with um, Will Ferrell. Mm -hmm. And my first, you know, Toby and Hannah, Toby Williams and Hannah George, former yeah. fan club members, they watched it three times in one weekend. <laughs> and I, I couldn't really, I, I mean, I didn't, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't got all the way through it, basically. And I started it five weeks ago, or whenever it came out. Uh, I watched about 40 minutes of it. Um, it's like two hours and five minutes. And you just think, that's way too long. Netflix, well, it's like when um, Ridiculous Six came out. It's like it's two and a half hours long. And you go, it's an Adam Sandler movie. But not like, not like, it, even Punch Drunk Love is like 90 minutes. Do you know what I mean? Which is his like most critically acclaimed film. Yeah. Ridiculous Six is two and a half hours long. It's like what we were talking about. Judd Apatow started this. Where like, it just felt like, you'd see one of his films and it'd be like, this is like two hours twenty or something. Funny, funny people's three hours long, right? You just yeah. think way too long. Fucking hell! But like, um, so what we we're talking about once upon a time in Mexico, and uh, Robert Rodriguez wanted to make this epic, and like once upon a time in the West, and the good, the bad, and the ugly—they're like three hours each, right? And they fill that time, and there's so much tension and pacing, and these long shots where nothing happens, and you just see like like a figure come from like the the distance into the foreground in like one unbroken shot it takes fucking ages but the films fly by and then you've got once upon a time in mexico which is like 92 minutes long or however long and it and it feels fucking long right at 90 minutes and then you've got like adam sanders made a western the ridiculous six and it's like almost as long as the good the bad and the ugly and it's just like, oh my god, it's got like vanilla ice in it, and you're like, what? How has vanilla ice managed to, as Mark Twain, how is it's like <laughs> the scene where David Spade is Colonel Custer, and vanilla ice is Mark Twain, and vanilla ice has all of the lines, but David Spade looks like Colonel Custer. It's just, a, I don't know. It's Make like, me laugh though. Yeah, sure. Watch it, mate. It'll take you two and a quarter hours to get to the Vanilla Rice cameo, right? It's like, oh my... Oh, anyway. Anyway! So, I just find it weird, right? When, when Netflix go, do what you like, and then they do, and they hand in this thing, and they haven't... It doesn't like... matter, because it's not, it's not made for the cinema, so it's not like they've got to fit in three or four shows a day or something. They've got, like... You know, it's, it doesn't matter if their films are three hours long, if... if um... Mike yeah, wants to make the Irishman and it's three and a half hours. They go, sure. Yeah, sure. But, uh, the Irishman, I mean, I don't know who directed Ridiculous Six, but it's either David Dobkin or the other guy, right? Um, it's fucking... That, they're not Martin Scorsese, right? Sure. There needs to be someone saying, cut that bit out, <laughs> and uh, why don't you trim that? And yeah. I tell you what, why are you taking out all the racist jokes? Do you know what I mean? It's like, why, why then, it'll be, then it'll be like 80 minutes. <laughs> perfect! That is the perfect length for an Adam Sandler movie. That's all right. In out. Right? Anyway, so, um, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is a film that I watched a lot when I was, like, uh, I would probably say 10 or 11. It seemed to be on BBC a lot growing up. I haven't watched it. It's not like I would... I'd probably say that if I was going to watch a Steve Martin film, 
is way down the list of films that I would watch. I would, I would agree. And yet, if if I was to pick my favourites based on, as I say, I haven't seen it in years, I would be like, oh yeah, I love it. It would be in my top five or whatever. It'd be like, yeah, oh, of course, don't you want scoundrels? Well, yeah, but if I was going to watch a film, I'd watch probably The Jerk, Three Amigos, Man with Two Brains, Little Shop of Horrors, um, and then you're getting into Father of the Bride type territory, and it's kind of like, and I and I did love Father of the Bride when I was young, but it's, mm, um, I think you got like Father of the Bride two, cheaper by the dozen. Um, Cheaper by the dozen. Bring that um, in the house. Fucking what was that other one that he made? Um, My Blue Heaven. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> I would say that um, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is his might be his best film. It's absolutely incredible. It's really funny, like really, 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 really funny. Michael Caine is, is just, like, I laughed, like, properly out loud from beginning to end. Um, a lot of, the, it's like, it's a little bit front-loaded where, like, all of the bits that you sort of remember are in the first, fucking, like, 40 minutes. Um, but it's, it, yeah, it's so great. Like, the montage when he's sort of, like, learning how to be like Michael Caine and all the Rupert stuff, that's all, like, in the first 40 minutes. Um... But as a performance, as like a, I think it might be Steve Martin's best performance because when he's sort of like um, when he's left to his own, LA story, that's a great film. When mm. he's left to his own devices, he's kind of like uh, very sort of like clownish and over the Roxanne. He's very clownish and over the top. Bowfinger. Say that again. Bowfinger. 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 His, that was his last classic. And for a while, Eddie Murphy's. It was sort of like this one song, wasn't it? Um, uh, yeah, he's sort of like, yeah, when you look at something like Bowfinger, he's sort of like very over the top. When he's like acting opposite Michael Caine, Michael Caine does so little in that film, like in terms of performance. He's so sort of like static. And Steve Martin is kind of like this sort of like satellite around him. And the, the performances really complement each other. And it sort of grounds all of like Steve Martin's. Bit. You just imagine it's kind of like Tommy Lee Jones and Jim Carrey in Batman Forever, where Jim Carrey has decided I'm going to be Jim Carrey times ten, and Tommy Lee Jones sort of tries to match him on energy, and it's awful. And it could have been that sort of situation where uh, Steve Martin had gone in and tried to do something like really sort of like. Um, hate the word, zany, uh, and done something sort of like really like larger than life, and then Michael Caine would have tried to, but Michael Caine doesn't do that, and so Steve Martin has to go to Michael Caine, and it's just like, Steve, it's, I think it's such a great Steve Martin performance, and it's just a really funny film, and I love Steve Martin. Um, it, that was going to be uh, David Bowie and Mick Jagger, wasn't it, at one point? And I think it was Scorsese was the person who they were trying to get to make it. Really? And I think Scorsese was interested if it was David Bowie and Mick Jagger. And almost when they left the project, he was like, nah, it'd be rubbish now. And he'd go, nah, it would have been awful. It just would have been 
but they, they were both, and then after that, it was... Hey, what? So, so somebody watched Dancing in the Streets and went, we've got to make a fucking movie out of this. I think it was either that or it almost came out of Dancing. Dancing in the Street came out of these discussions about them doing a comedy movie together. And it was, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Scorsese who was the person who was attached to direct it and things. And then it, then it all kind of went away. And then for a while, I think they were trying to put it together with the Michael Caine character was going to be John Cleese at one point. I can't remember who who the Steve Martin character was going to be. But, but it's that, baffling. That makes sense if it was still Steve Martin, though. If it was Steve Martin and John Cleese. Yeah. But actually, when you think of it as like a remake of a film with Brando and David Niven, it's much better. It makes much more sense to have Steve Martin and Michael Caine. Well, so the original was called Bedtime Story, right? Mm. Uh, it was David, yeah, David Niven, Marlon Brando. It's uh, actually it's like the big, the big sequence. I mean, I've only seen Bedtime Story once, and it was quite a long time ago. But one of the things that really stood out to me was how little Steve Martin changed. Exactly. Yeah, you assume. It's going to be like he's made it a complete comedy role, and the original's nothing like that. But yeah. Ruprecht and all that stuff is from Brando doing it. Yeah, but Ruprecht is exactly like Brando. Yeah. Like, and you just think that is such a Steve Martin creation. And then you watch Brando do it, and you go, oh my God, he didn't even change it. It's just, mm. it, it's crazy. And also, David Niven is so, well, do you know what? I was going to say, well, they've kind of like designed Michael Caine to look like David Niven. They've given him like a little pencil dash and they slicked his hair back. But like, I don't know. It's, 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 it's difficult to remember, but there was a time when Michael Caine was not considered a fantastic actor. He mm. was actually to be quite wooden. And this is coming off the back of The Swarm, uh, Jaws the Revenge, uh, other would classics. You know, would it be around that time as well that he would have been... Hannah and her sisters would have been around that sort of time, wouldn't it? Which he got an Oscar for. So that might have been... Yeah, you, might have been turning the tide a bit. Do you know the best ever story about, about that? Is that Michael Caine couldn't accept his Oscar in person because he was filming Jaws the Revenge. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he got an Oscar, but he was... Mind you, he was in the Bahamas... Um, I mean, that was it, wasn't it? He was—he would make no secret about the majority of the work he took on had nothing to do with whether uh, it was a good part. It was all about making a bit of money, wasn't it? And yeah, well, it's about working consistently. And I think mm. that if you work consistently, there will be good stuff and bad stuff. Mm. I think one of my downfalls is that I've been really picky, and I've turned stuff down, and um, and you don't really know what's going to be a hit. And you don't really know what's going to be successful. I've done some really good stuff, but it hasn't really taken off. And I think, um, I think that when you look at someone like Michael Caine, he, I doubt he's turned anything down. And he has literally ridden that wave of being in some absolute shit. But then sooner or later, Cider House Rules comes along. And yeah. all of a sudden, you're fucking... Uh, older statesman now he's he's like um, all of a sudden Christopher Nolan's putting you in every single film and everyone thinks that you're hot shit and it's just kind of like well if you remember in the 80s Michael Caine was just not he was not considered to be great you know um, he was sort of like a 60s icon 
And then he was around in the 70s. He made some fairly big films. And then he sort of like just was like B-movies and shit. So when he's in like Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, you look at it now in hindsight, going, oh, bloody hell, Michael Caine. But in actual fact, and he's like the lead. It's Steve Martin, Michael Caine. But when you watch it, Michael Caine is definitely like the lead. Like there's like, there's like a 20 minute section halfway through the film where Steve Martin isn't even in it. And, um, uh, yeah, and you see, you look back on it, you go, well, Michael Caine, but in actual fact, at the time, he was like, it was like, I can't remember what year, like 1988, maybe? So he was either going into Jaws the Revenge or just coming out of it. Um, and maybe he'd just won an Oscar, but I, I don't think that he was really that, you know, that well-respected in terms of... Whereas David Niven... Also, Michael Caine is sort of like... When you talk about, like, suave and sophisticated and ladies, uh, like a ladies' man, which is what the part is, you know, um, Michael Caine's not the first person that you think of. No. Michael Caine plays a lot of, like, gangsters and thugs and spies and stuff like that. But he's, like, the anti-Bond. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think when, he's playing, when he's playing a spy in sort of, like, the Ipcris file or whatever, he, he's sort of, like, the opposite of what James Bond is, you know? You hire him to be the opposite of Sean Connery. So you've got, like, uh, the man who would be king. And he's, like, the counterpoint to Sean Connery. Mm. And, um, and so it's sort of like this weird sort of stretch that Michael Caine is playing, like this suave, sophisticated kind of guy. It's a great film. Directed by Yoda. Um, yeah. Uh, we've got a couple of minutes before we do the fan mail. Uh, what was I going to say about Michael Caine? I was going to... Uh, I had another Michael Caine story, I think. Is that popped out of my head? It's popped out of my head. Uh, that's fan club. Fucking hell. Uh, we'll take you right to the edge of your seat, guys, and then we'll uh, hit you with a left hook because you just can't... Oh, no, that's what I was going to say. No, oh, it's, here we go! Here we go! Here we go! Strap in! Fucking roller coaster! It's a roller coaster fucking episode this week. Five star family fun size fan club. Whoa! Fucking hell! We got fucking Michael Caine facts coming at you. Uh, just after these messages. Oh no! Here he is. He's coming in now. After um, after he's, he sort of came back and had his side house rules stuff. He had. Um, I remember him doing an announcement saying, "Well." I have basically retired now, so I'll only make films if they're worth doing now. I don't have to do it. Uh, so I'm only going to do the best scripts that come along. And you go, oh, yeah, fair enough. And a couple of films in, you go, sure, he's doing all these Christopher Nolan movies. I can see that. I can see why he'd want to do those. And then he did that film with, uh, what was that one with Vin Diesel, where it's like Witch Hunter or something? Well, <laughs> go, you didn't have to do that one, Michael. You could have. Or gold member. <laughs> could have just sat it out. On holiday. I suppose nobody knew how bad Goldmember was going to be until they made it. Because The Spy Who Shagged Me was the film that launched Austin Powers, really. You I know. love the first one. I think the first one's great. Yeah, I think the first one's incredible. I loved it. But it wasn't a hit until it came out on video. No. And then the second one was huge. And then the third one came out, and I thought the third one was terrible. Um, well, it sort of killed it, didn't it? It killed the franchise. But then it was a trilogy, right? I suppose. I think they would have kept going. I just thought it was rubbish. 
like the bit when they have a flashback and then they've got them at, at university and you just like go, it doesn't look anything like them. And it's, and also you've got two actors that are playing young Austin Powers and young Dr. Evil. And you go, why don't you get the same actor to do it like Mike Myers did? It was weird. Like just the weird choices and rubbish. They came out, they seemed to come out quite quick succession as well, didn't they, those movies? They probably could have benefited from having a bit of time off. Maybe. I, I don't know. I felt like they were sort of like spaced out a bit. But, um, yeah, that first one is a classic. Although I haven't seen it in ages. And it, and Me either. Me either. I say that first one's a classic. Although I haven't seen it in ages and there's nothing that really makes me want to go back and watch it. Uh, I've, I, prefer, I prefer the Wayne's World films. Big time. Um, right, okay. Uh, have you seen anything else this week? I have, but it's, we're, we're, we're past that point. What did you watch? I've seen Doctor No, Enter the Dragon, Interview of the Vampire, and Dangerous Liaisons. Oh, yeah, Keanu Reeves. Um, and uh, Enter the Dragon, uh, John Saxon died last week, two weeks ago? Yeah, about two weeks ago. Every single one of those guys in Enter the Dragon is the coolest guy you've ever seen. Yeah. Like, they could all have their own spin-offs. Is it Jim Kelly? Yeah, Jim Kelly. Jim Kelly, Bruce Lee, John Saxon. Three cool guys. Uh, yeah. They could have all had their own spin-off. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, we're going to do some fan mail now. Thanks for writing in. We really love to hear your feedback. I'm out of Ribena, and I am actually very thirsty. It's so hot. Here's the fan mail. Hey, Nick and Nuts! Hey, Nick. Oh, yeah, okay. I'm just trying to work out the, the voice there. Okay. Here I am, Brian Johnson, reading out the fan mail from Nick and Nat's fan club. Hi, Nick and Nathaniel Metcalf, long-time listener and five-star fan. I'm also a big fan of Doctor Who classic series and new series. I know Nick has met Peter Davidson already. But I think he would be a great guest, possibly talking about how he deals with fans as a lot of Who who fans are complete weirdos, myself included. He also wrote the theme tune to Button Moon, and his daughter is married to David Tennant. I thought he sang the theme tune to Button Moon, and I also thought he sang the opening credits of Button Moon or the closing credits, but he didn't sing both. I'm not sure he wrote it. I don't know if he wrote it. I think think he sings it, doesn't he? I think, he, I think he sings the end credits. I don't think he sings the opening credits. I think it's two different singers. Hmm. Interesting. In a way. In another way, not interesting at all. And his daughter is married to David Tennant. Just a thought. The probably hates this idea. And the more I reread it, the more I hate it too. It's times now, though, so might as well send it. Thanks for reading, Pete. Go on. <laughs> um, that was a... That was, anyway, it's a nice, I thought it was quite a nice email. I, um, I think I'd love to have Peter Davison on, Natalie. Let's get him, let's get him on. Let's get Peter Davidson. David, Davison. 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 I love yeah, him. please. He's my favourite doctor. And, and you're all... named after Tristan Farnham. Yeah. My middle name is Tristan. One of my middle names is Tristan. After Peter Davison's character in All Creatures Great and Small. Hey guys, I watched the first two seasons of The Sinner and the back of Nick's recommendation. Loved the first season. The second was not as good. Is the third better? I would say the third season is a return to form. I agree. I thought the first season was incredible. Didn't really 
I thought the second season was sort of like, yeah, it, it wasn't as good. But the third season I thought was fucking great. Just out of the Red Dwarf Dock. Just out on, uh, just put on the Red Dwarf Dock. I saw Nick Helm. I once bumped into him in the main car park in Winchester Services after midnight. That is the end of that fun anecdote. Have you been to see any films at the cinema yet? I have been to the audience to see a few classics like Superman and Bill and Ted's. And now back to my cinema world for Proxima. Back to the future trilogy and good films. Ah. Oh. The audience seem to be doing far more for health and safety. Shame I already have a silly world card. It will be interesting to see what happens next week when we have to wear masks. Thanks for reading. This is this in a funny voice. Thanks for reading this in a funny voice. Yes, I'm from five foot nine. James. Ah, oh, five foot nine cunt. Mm. It's a bit offensive as well to Brian Johnson to say he's reading it in a funny voice when he's coming oh, every week. He's oh, a special guest every week to do our fan mail. I'm not reading it, it's Brian Johnson comes in every week. Ah, thanks for just picking me up. Cannot I... wait to get back to... Cannot wait to get back into live gigs again. Of course, you've got nothing to do in, in lockdown. You might oh, have absolutely finished in lockdown. Absolutely nothing to do. Anyway, here we go. Hi, Nick and Matt. I recently started rewatching all the episodes of Rick and Morty. I love that series. Are you big fans of Rick and Morty as well, Holly? I've never watched it. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I've seen I've seen one that wasn't the first one, and I got confused. And I think you've got to watch it from the start. And I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm yeah. not sure. I want to watch it. I haven't seen it. Person Moon's intro was composed and performed by Peter Davidson and Sandra Dickinson, who were married at the time. Of course they were. Right. Okay. Uh, we've got what have we got? We got uh, one more bit of fat. Oh my god! My fucking finger is all sticky. <laughs> my all right. Right. Uh, hey, Nick and Nat, how are you doing, boys? This week has been far too warm for my teeth. How have you been coping with the heat? Fine, it's hot. Hi, Nick and Nat, I recently started rewatching all the episodes of Rick and Morty, right? Okay, yeah, sure, sure, sure. I've never watched it, I'll give it a go. I think David Trent's kids love it. Hello, Nick and Nathaniel. Nick, I've watched your video clips recently and you are starting to look a bit like Wurzel Gummidge, but I guess it suits you. This led me to think about kids' TV shows. What are your favourites, Terence? Well, you don't get an answer. Um, uh, hello, Nick and Nathaniel. Nick, I've watched your video. Okay, why have you repeated that at the bottom? Why, Natalie, have you added that up? Right, we're going to play a song, and then is our guest here? Is our guest I, I here? Didn't it. I didn't miss it. I didn't miss it, actually, uh, Natalie. I went oh. back to read it. I didn't miss it at all. Fucking, I don't tell you how to do your job. <laughs> I do, sometimes. Um, right, our guest isn't here yet. Uh, so what do we do? Well, I guess we go to a song anyway, because we've done Let's it Let's pick this song out, because I've picked it. I saw, I saw Paul Anker on an old episode of Sunday Night at London Palladium do this song, and I thought it was great. Let's play Flashback. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Bar Radio. We're back in the studio. We're not in the studio. We're in our uh, living rooms. Uh, uh, my name's Nick. Uh, this is uh, Nathaniel Metcalf. We are joined now by uh, living legend, uh, Samantha Morton. How are you doing? Hello. I'm all right. A bit, just a bit hot, in it? It's proper hot. It's too hot. Whereabouts are you, Samantha? Um, I'm down south. Um, 
So it's really hot down south. Yes. Well, it's nearer the equator. So it yeah, would be. Yeah. <laughs> right there. But yeah, it is proper hot. Um, I used to live in Derbyshire where we used to get, it was obviously it gets hot, but um, not more rain than anything else. So this is this is new to me. And I've not lived in London for years and years and years. So all my friends in London are sweltering going, oh, you know, like, it's hot here as well. Yeah. <laughs> where are you guys? London. 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 Um, and I've got, I've got the sun pouring on me now. Oh, Although it does, it does make me, like I was saying, it makes me look slightly angelic. Yeah, I've got, I think I'm normally quite, quite, um, not got a fan on either, it'd be a bit noisy. Yeah, yeah. Nick's Should got I a fan on. I've got a fan on. But, um, oh. yeah, I mean, we, we, I mean this is going over old territory. Got hat on. I've got, I do, but I've got I shit hair. Got a woolly hat on today. Yeah, but I've got shit hair. <laughs> so, so, like, it, like the alternative. I think I beat you. Yeah, but like also the, yeah. the look at this. So I've got a bald head in The Walking Dead, right? Right. You see that? And it's growing back, and I've got a proper mullet. Oh, it is actually proper. Well, I am. All of my hair is long. I just yeah. Right. I like your hair. I like your hair. It's, it, it's. I don't know. It's. It reminds me of the the early nineties charlatans vibe. But if you oh, look sure. at the side of my hair, it looks like somebody's hit me with a shovel. How many months is that of growing from, from bald? November. It's nearly a year. November. Oh, wow. I, can't believe, I cannot believe it's September in three weeks. That's weird. I, I don't know what this, I don't know what has happened to, well, I do know what's happened for this year. But time's but gone just, weird. Time has gone really, really weird. Like, I've got, obviously, once a week I do the sheets and wash all the towels, family stuff, you know, house, household chores. And sometimes sometimes it actually feels like I did it the day before. Like, I'm not kidding. Like, I go, I did this yesterday. Did I not? You know, <laughs> because you've got no, if you're not going anywhere, if you've got no appointments outside of your home other than cooking, cleaning, looking after your kids, all that stuff, it's been surreal. So I think that's yeah. why, you know, I think so anyway. Well, yeah, because we record this on a Wednesday, it comes out on a Friday, and then it comes out as a podcast on a Monday, and then we record on a Wednesday, and it's kind of like, it feels yeah. like there's never any time in between the shows. It's good that you're doing these shows, you've got, you know, I don't mean to be all like, end of the worldy, but you've got something going on, it's really, really hard when you've got no, like as an actor, I'm used to call sheets, I'm used to going, oh, I've got to be up at three, because I'm in makeup at five, and, and... I've always known I was very lucky to do that because I know I'm lucky to have that job. But I miss it, really, miss it. I miss that. Obviously, I love being at home with my children, but there's a balance of, of the both, you know, of, of having both. And I think what having something to do other than housework and cooking um, <laughs> is really, you know, especially if you're an artist, you're a creative person, that part of the brain, that muscle is not being used in the same way. So... So, so how much work have you been able to do in lockdown? None. None. Well, um, I write it, but that just literally went out the window because you suddenly, I've got a six-year-old boy and a 12-year-old girl and a 20-year-old girl, the 20-year-old's grown up and off, off she's gone. But you, you know, you, don't get me wrong, I'm, I, no, I think, I, even though I work really hard, I, I'm also really a homebody, so I do a lot with my kids, and it's like that—that's important to me. My relationship with them is really important. But suddenly, lockdown happens, and you're 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 coping with your own um, fears, 
about what's happening and not wanting to project those onto the littlies, wanting to make life still fun and interesting, even though you can't go anywhere. I don't drive either. So I lived on, I, I had a, a house in the Peak District. We had a nice garden, a really big garden, but I didn't drive. So you just, it's just, in, it was it was proper weird. So no, no acting work per se. And it wasn't even like I felt compelled to do a monologue on my own. I mean, who would do that? I'd be a bloody weirdo, do you know what I mean? I'm not that kind of actor. And you, you just, I don't know. So it just became about making sure they were okay, that like, you know, making things a bit more interesting. Um, and now I suppose we are going back into some kind of, um, I don't know, some kind of opened up society. And... I am literally shitting myself because I don't totally trust the government with what they're doing, this, that, and the next thing. Um, you know, you've got to trust the science, I suppose, on it, and you've got to pray to God you don't get it. Mm-hmm. But yet, at the same time, you've got to go, kids back at school in a few weeks, what, the, there's going to be a lockdown in Oldham? Or there is. I, I'm really a bit... And also things like, you know, some productions have got a lot of money, so they can test people constantly and do little bubbles and quarantining vibes. Most of the things that I work on or have worked on, they don't have that kind of money. They've only got enough money for a, a bacon bap in the morning. Let alone. <laughs> That's interesting as well, because that also means that going forward, it might change the sort of breadth of the kind of material that gets made as well, right? Oh, so you completely. Have... We were already, we're already struggling with kind of genuinely, genuinely working class voices out there. Um, and you know and getting funding for those things and being uh, you know being female as well really struggling with trying to get things from the development stage into production because uh, you can be in development for years on projects and I suppose that looks good on certain on the books in some ways to do with gender equality um, but moving forward I just all that's just going to have taken a massive knock I think yeah um, well, we, we're comedians, and so we work in comedy. And, um, and yeah, the, the working-class comedians uh, are, are getting hit really hard because it's kind of like you've got all of these... You've got a lot of posh, posh boys that are, that are independently wealthy that can afford to do comedy, and then you've got people that kind of like... are reli- You've got a lot of people that were just coming up to the point where they were getting paid gigs... And you've got a whole generation of comedians that were just getting to the point where they were going to be able to make a living off of comedy. And then it's just taken this massive beating. And, I, and it's not just what a gig's going to be like when people go back to it. It's going to be like, who's going to be left that is actually able to financially survive doing it, you know? day, it's a risk. To, if, you're to, if you're stopping whatever normal job you've got, nursing, accountancy, teaching, whatever, to decide a career in the arts, whether or not you're a set de- decorator, you want to learn about sound, boom, whatever, or comedian or a musician in a, you know, in a, in a wind band or a jazz quartet, whatever, you're just absolutely fucked right now because you don't have the bank of mum and dad to go, can you lend me some of my inheritance early or those conversations you, you've got what you've got and you've got to try and survive and it's and sadly people will have to start doing like well I was really good at maybe I'll go and be a carpenter again and fit kitchens or not that there's anything wrong with that at all but if that if you've left that life to, do, to pursue something that makes you genuinely happy even though it's fucking hard work there's a comedy club in Nottingham that I heard was getting shut down um 
do you hear about that? An old pub that I think Eddie Izzard did one of his first gigs at. Right. No. It's good Maybe. to talk about that. You know, that's where I'm from initially, and I still have huge links there and stuff. And, you know, even down to, it's not just, obviously it is, but it's not just about the people performing in these venues. These venues are collapsing mm-hmm. as well. So it's the whole, yeah. I think the pandemic's just, I know that these conversations have probably been had so many times, and I don't want to come on the show and just, you know, be negative or talk about things that you've already talked about, but that's where I'm at, really, as yeah. a... You know, and there's the misconception that, like, I do, I do a bit, bit of telly, but I spent, I spent years in television as a kid, and then had str- struggled with the hierarchy and the, is it the hierarchy, the institutionalization of the male middle class world, uh, white male middle class world of television back in when, when I was a kid. So went into films because I and moved to New York, and I'm doing these independent movies with these really interesting people. There's no money in that. There's zero money in that. So you're literally, you're, and there's this misconception that you do well or you get Oscar nominations or BAFTA nominations or win Golden Globes, whatever, and that you're sorted. It's really, I mean, I suppose if you're really fit, I mean, I'm not ugly, but I'm not like, do you know what I mean? Another lass that can be under a perfume campaign. I remember years ago going, oh, all these actresses do all these independent movies and, they all do perfume as well, you know what I mean? And I'm, I mean, I'd be lucky if I got a Boots number seven back in the day, but I wouldn't have even got that, do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, so there's no, if you are truly an independent kind of person, um, you're struggling massively. Well, I'm not struggling, I'm all right. I've, you know, I've been sensible and clever over the years and stuff, so I'm all right, touch wood, at the moment. But even, I was listening to Simon Bustle, Simon, what's his name? Simon Russell Beale, that's it. Nearly said Simon Bustle Beale um, on um, on the radio ages ago. Literally, when lockdown, when we're in the middle of lockdown, I think around April, May, I was listening to him, and he was like, he could survive for a year, and then he's really got to sort stuff out. I was buying a new house before lockdown, and I did that thing where you go a little bit above your station, like, oh, you know, I'm going to move from house with a garden to a house with a bit of a bigger garden and a bit more potential that kind of thing which at 43 I was like I can do this now and then I lost all my contracts all of like six jobs just disappeared overnight so everybody's got their own little things haven't they of going shit fucking hell of course I think that's you know I think we've almost got to think of it more like uh um it's because it's happening to everyone I think people need to start thinking of it like it is something that's happened to everyone. So we almost have to try and start again at some sort of more even playing field or something or try and wipe stuff out and get people back to a sort of level playing field to begin with and then take it from there or something. The establishment's going to let that happen. No, me either. But I mean, it feels like that's the only way it can sort of work. But I think we all have to understand each other. And I think that the... The general population has this assumption about the entertainment industry where we're all bloody... Certainly my family did. I remember when I was in Boone back in the day playing Mandy the Car Thief. I think they thought I'd won the lottery. I was like, I got 50 quid. They're <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, okay. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That There is this like, oh, you're on telly, you're going to earn loads of money. Yeah. And yet in comparison, it is a bit more money than... But not... Do you know what I mean? It's It's all... A bit bonkers. But anyway, I like that room I'm looking at. Turtles, you've got a... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I've got an arcade. You've got an arcade. What's your oh. poster on the wall? A screen. What's the poster? What there? Is that Jacob's Ladder? 
That is Prince of Darkness by John Carpenter. Oh, okay. Did, I you mean, read, did you read my top ten films in uh, Empire? No. Why? Have a look. I'm so, I, you should have a look. See if you can Google it now while we're talking. Okay. Yeah, I did, they asked me to do top ten child, favourite childhood films. Right, okay. Okay. So, and and funny, we would be laughing now had you read it, but you haven't, so it's not that funny. Oh, I'm so sorry. Well, I'm not that sorry. Um, anyway, one of the things like The Exorcist and The Hills Have Eyes and... Oh, really? And um, what was... And, and The Entity and The Witch and, you know, kind of all films like that that were... The Omen was in there. I love so, you're, so you're into horror films? Well, when I was a kid, I didn't mean to be into horror films. My stepdad ran a dodgy video not dodgy like dodgy dodgy but like a you know there was no blockbusters back in the 80s where yeah. we, were on a so we had a uh, mixed video and it was just uh, around the corner okay, yeah, so but... in my house my stepdad in his front room had what looked like a wall of leather books but they weren't they were like video cases yeah i remember those yeah they, yeah they're sort of designed to look like um oh, like so volumes of, um, poetry or something People would come and knock on the door and they'd be like, oh, have you got the Eagle Dead? You'd be like, oh, yeah, me a minute. He was from the Gorbals, <laughs> amazing man. They'd be like, give me a wee minute. You'd grin and be like, oh, yeah, I've got this. And we'd come out with just so. Anyway, so as a kid, I just watched all dodgy horror. Not dodgy. It was really good horror, but I was about yeah. five, six. Bit, bit too young for some of that shit. Yeah, absolutely. But then that was like the 80s was uh, all the video nasties and everything. And Evil Dead was all sort of like um, swept up in that. Even though, when you watch Evil Dead now, it's literally, it was made by like 20 year olds and it's just them playing with plasticine in sort of like their bedroom. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But all the, sort of the that special effects and everything, like, you know, you look at Hellraiser and all those things. I think as a child, you don't understand that. And it is, a, it is scary as hell. And I think because I was Catholic, <laughs> Films like The Omen really got to me and The Exorcist. And I didn't understand that they were also great cinema. But things like, you know, all those films, Assault on Precinct, uh, the original, uh, I can't remember the name of it now, but there's so many films oh, that then you yeah. look because of so many different elements to do with the end of the world or, you know, it was the 80s, of course, you know, you've got, and it was all America and American culture. And yeah, but I was too little, but now I'm not a big horror fan. But we're all of we're all of a similar age. Of I was born in seventy nine, and Nick, you're eighty eighty. 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 So we're all we're all of similar. We probably all have grown up with a similar bunch of films. I haven't been able to find that Empire list. I don't know if Natalie's able to dig it out from somewhere. But yeah, we must all have probably grown up on very similar movies of the time. I think. Oh, no, no, because I was I was scared of horror films until I was maybe about. Um, 13 or 14, like, I, like honestly, because uh, I grew up in London and there'd be posters for like n Nightmare, there was like a Nightmare on Elm Street film yeah, that yeah, came yeah. out every year. Yeah, and but I Nightmare on Elm Street was, I mean, I didn't sleep for probably a year after that. But just off the posters on the oh, underground. Horrible, absolutely I horrible. Like do no, that. I can't do it. I, I've seen them obviously, but I can't do it. And I can't even watch The Walking Dead, it's too scary. I can't have lunch with the zombies at lunch. <laughs> absolutely crap my pants I can't do it I'm like I'm so sorry mate I've got to go and sit at that table over there <laughs> you off for dinner anyway why do you think that is if you grew up on them and then 
you've sort of like revert reverted when you have children you then start to understand your immortality and a lot of those films obviously are about the end of something zombie films are about end of civilization you know there's so many kind of you know you can read into them to do with society and all the rest of it and i think so the reason i don't like being scared because i scare easily and i don't i want to be happier than got my charity happy t-shirt on look happy time for me. Sorry, can't talk now. I'm on my way. Call you later. Custom. Cancel. Sorry, that's not professional, is it? But it's good. That's fine. Could you hear that? Yeah, yeah. It's really loud. We're slick as fuck on this channel, so it's cool. You have literally, it looks to me like you've consistently worked since you started. Yeah. And so uh, so you started in like 1991 with Soldier Soldier. No, Ali the Alien was first. Uh, what was it? What, what year was that? Ali the Alien. I was Ali the Alien. You played that. You're the, you're the title part. In a children's TV series. And I had a remote control for a telly as my teleporter that took me away to other planets. And I had Miss... You know, can you remember that Lost in Space show? Yeah. The, they were really sweet. The costume designer just basically dressed me up like an extra in Lost in Space, and that was it. So How old were you then? I think I was about 11 or 12. So I think because you're part of this central television workshop, right? So that was lots of kids from the kind of Midlands area, right? That were all. Yeah, there's two. There was a Birmingham group and a Nottingham group, and they basically supplied actors for their shows that was the initial thing so it was like local kids trained as actors um in a very very individual way you've never seen anything like it and i the guy that took over from the first person it's a guy called ian smith who's now retired you know you can't bottle that it's like something he's a very very special man and how he teaches drama so i was one of the one of the kids that i suppose first poi fan lee uh was one of the first people she did a, a a show in Edinburgh and you had certain people had already kind of broken out of Nottingham gone to London but I think I did an episode of Cracker peak practice and then an episode of Cracker that got me noticed and so I got that I got out of properly got away you not not that I needed to get away but properly was doors were opened and Cracker yeah, was, was such a huge thing at the time wasn't it so just it was like an introduction to like a whole generation of actors who have just sort of become huge off the back of it yeah, yeah. Lyle, you had so many people on that. Uh, yeah, it was, yeah. And people as well who'd probably been around for a while, but it was sort of the first exposure to it. Because it was a really popular show, but just had that kind of introduction to so many people. It was brilliant. It was, I think, and also you've got to remember, back then everything was shot on film. It was three episodes per story, so you could really, really, you know, Robbie, uh, Robbie Coltrane being amazing, you, you could really explore the, you know, these dramas. But... Yeah, it was back in the day when we only had four channels. Mm. So it was huge. And so, yeah, I've been working since then, luckily. Touch wood, rather apart from the moment. So that's a huge success story. Thank you. It is. But, uh, I mean, um, and also you've, uh, in your career, you've worked with some absolutely, absolutely huge people. You know, you've worked with uh, Tom Cruise and Steven Spielberg and uh, uh, 
Bobby Coltrane that we've just mentioned. I saw pictures of you with Dennis Hopper as well. Yeah, I've worked with, I mean, I've, my leading men have been really cool. I've worked with the Dennis Leary, Dennis Hopper, Sean Penn, uh, Johnny Depp, um, Phil Seymour Hoffman, Joaquin Phoenix. I seem to get paired up with some pretty extraordinary male actors. Uh, I'm looking, you know, yeah. But it's also the level is, it, it, it's always, your CV, it's always of a very high level and you've you've managed to have sort of, a career on both sides of the Atlantic and it's always seems to be doing kind of high quality work, right? It's not like, it doesn't feel like you've had dips or... You hope it is. Like a few years ago, I, did, I, I do tend to work more in America and I don't know if that's a class thing. So when I first started out here, I was literally just getting put up for all the young prostitutes or scallywags or all the rest of it. And I said to my agent at the time, I really want to do films and the films... You know, obviously Kate Winslet was doing everything, but getting everything. And I was like, can I just audit? I just want to audition. It took me off the back of being in Jane Eyre, sofa surfing in New York, age 19, to to just I had to just turn up and then start setting. Then got, got an American agent. And when I started going to auditions in America, I didn't speak English. Just didn't say nothing until they went, and action. And you're like... And you just, so Jesus' Son, which was with uh, Holly Hunter, Dennis Leary, Dennis Hopper, um, was, and, and, and May, you know, Jack Black was in that, was one of his first film roles. Um, Billy Crudup was the lead in that. Uh, Miranda July's in that as well, like back in the day. So that was my first kind of big American role, um, which was an independent indie American film. So then that opens doors for you. And, and I just seem to work, they like me there. And whereas here, I feel like, I don't know, I've upset people. Not so much anymore. I think now, I think people have gone, she's, she's all right. We'll, we'll let her off. We'll give her, we'll give her a part every once in a while. But it's like, I don't know. I like the American way of working. I love their union. I'm quite a political person. So I love the fact that my, my SAG, Afro, my union, they support me. I support them. I like the way they work on set. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a kind of, what's it, when you say when you love America, is it America, you know, it's, someone's an Anglophile or whatever, I love America, like, I know they've got problems right now, I won't go into that, but mm. they have, New York changed my life, the people that employed me changed my life, the people that took a risk on me changed my life, and I, 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 I think the only really big thing out here I've done, I was lucky enough for David Yates to say, would you want to be in Fantastic Beasts? I don't really get here the kind of offers I get in the States. Sure. I guess it is that thing again, isn't it? It's, it's that sort of snobbish thing. And I know you were, like one of the things you've got to be a fan of was The Wire and things, but I've heard a lot of actors on that, that it's, it takes lots of these kind of English actors and, or British actors who go over there to get cast playing Americans because they would never get those kind of roles in the UK. And yet they have to go there to make it. Really. Yeah, and I think it is a class system because over there, they they don't have a monarchy, they don't have the upper classes. It, obviously they do have their own history with some of that, their own stuff to do with the Ivy League or education. It is, there is class over there, but you get what I'm saying. When I turn up, they don't know that I, back in the day, they didn't know that I was from a council estate in Nottingham or left school at 12 or was in care or in trouble with the police. That's not going to affect them casting me. All they look at is how good was your last job? Are you good enough for me? And if you prove you're good enough, then you stand a chance of, of having a, 
a good career. I never properly moved there though, always coming home because I thought that was important to ground me and always be with my mates. And, you know, I kind of kept a very low profile for quite a few years because I, I didn't like, because I had a very small child then. And after the initial kind of doing press for certain films, I was like, I don't think I like that really. So just kept my head down and carried on working. But yeah, going back to the thing about cool stuff is that I did this film a few years ago, uh, was originally called The Harvest, and then they changed it to Don't Come Out to Play with Mike Shannon, who's a, again, I did my, he was in Jesus' Son was his first film, Michael Shannon, who's huge now, you know, incredible actor. And so we do this film for John McNaughton and he did Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, you know, and we did this and it got amazing re reviews in variety. But again, these things aren't picked up at the cinema. So they go kind of straight to video or straight to streaming. And it's really hard to get people to go, you know, to see these things. And they, I remember Robert Englund, who plays, um, you know, Freddy Krueger, started following me on Twitter. And I was like, blown. I was, oh, my God, because he'd seen this this horror film and that's one of the best performances i've ever done in this film but no one's really seen it so it doesn't matter but it's like you get a bit like ah oh, it's a shame we don't have the cinemas like we used to for these films to you know to be there i guess that's it but you've sort of followed that because it feels now almost that tv is is taking over that kind of mid-level mid-budget movie that you you would have had um, sort of 20 years ago but now those those movies don't really do you sort of independent movies and huge massive blockbuster movies and nothing in between right and it feels that like the tv industry in america feels like it's sort of trying to fill that space a bit yeah i think that they take really big risks i think there's so much need for content that i don't know if sorry if you can hear my kids sorry um <laughs> um I'm, guys, <laughs> I'm, in the, I'm in here on the on a Zoom thing. Sorry. That's, That's all right. Um, it's real life. Real life. It's very real life in this house at the moment. Um, but uh, what was I saying? But yeah, so they do take a risk. I think obviously we've got to remember that UK, we are, we're, we're quite small really. We, do, we, we punch well above our weight in regards to the, what we do and the talent that we have. Um, <laughs> But we don't really have, we need to go to the Americans for our funding a lot of the time, you know. And I think, I love that relationship we have with them in regards to, to making things happen. Um, I do feel, I think that in regards to the kind of movies that I've loved watching and loved being luckily part of and working for certain filmmakers, um, I, um, how can I put it? I don't know if that's that will become so like arty like almost like in the 20s when Jean Vigo was making a film or something it might just become really arty because who's going to be able to go to the cinema to see it who's going to distribute it these film festivals at the moment are going to potentially struggle for sponsorship I, I don't know it's I don't want to lose so much heart that film which is an entirely different medium I believe uh, than television is going to die in that way because there's something so magic about film going through the film camera and it being so expensive and you've really got to get that take and there's something magic that happens as an actor when it's rolling because with digital you could do so many takes and it's there's a there's an advantage to that but there's there's nothing sexy about it mm -hmm. there's nothing like 
serious, like, got to fucking get these guys. And you look at each other like, right, okay, last roll of film or whatever. And it's like, we've, and the stakes are high, higher. That's crazy. I've never thought about that. Obviously, obviously I've thought about the quality of film compared to digital. But I've never thought about how the actual process and the actual equipment that you're using has an impact on um, on uh, on the outcome of the actual of the actual product. You know, like how? I'm sorry, you've blown my mind. <laughs> so, there's also something to do with celluloid that I believe in the olden days when people didn't want their photographs taken because it takes your soul. You've got to think about when, like when I am in front of a real camera and it's this, I don't know, the smell and the, it's just very special when we're filming. And I took it for granted as a kid because everything was shot on film, whether it was Super 16 or 35, you know, you were, or, you know, just was. Telly, all telly was on film when I was growing up, you know, just was. Um, there's something in that moment as well that science, I don't know, scientists, spirituality, that is to do with light, that how it takes in light. And we, are, we emit light, don't we? People read auras, they go, there's something in us that's... Well, I guess film's chemical, isn't it? And, and, and digital oh. ones and... Yeah, there's something so different. And I'm not... I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a world for both of them, but I, I just... I don't know. And also, we don't know about digital, how we're going to be able to keep these things for forever. Like, we've got all these digital photos in our phone of our children and our families and stuff, and it's like, even if you print them off, how long is that piece of paper going to last? Or that piece of film digital film paper going to last whereas we know how to preserve film we can do that for forever so i'm just worried about this whole generation of films and photographs that might be gone forever yes but also on top of that i think that you can i think you take digital stuff for granted you know yeah, it's so I, I used to take photos when i was when i was younger and i'd have some sort of like you know developed and stuff and you've got like a this is going back to sort of like digital versus physical media and stuff. But like, you know, I, I think that obviously I've got like pictures and stuff like covering up my entire walls, you know, ground to ceiling, and that's like something wrong. I got so I've got like three thousand photos on my on my phone that I never look at, and I buy albums on iTunes that I never listen to. Or I've got kind of like records that I, li that I do listen to. And it's kind of like digital stuff is so sort of like easy and disposable that it kind of like doesn't really mean anything anymore. There's a certain um, sense of that, but that's down to the individual discipline. I think generally it could be seen that way, but if you limit yourself hmm. to I'm only buying one album a month, and I know there's a lot coming out, but I'm only going to buy one album a month. I'm going to listen to the album, not singles. Um, I'm you know, like you can do it for yourself, I think, she says. But I think in regards to the photography thing, there's something really sad about back in the day, right? You'd, you know, you're going out with someone and you've been dating, you meet the parents, they go, oh, they get the album out and they go, oh, look at Blue when he was a kid or whatever. You don't have that anymore. That kind of sticky wedding album that's sitting in the corner of the room that you've, you know, someone gets out and you're like mortified or whatever. And, and it is, that might be okay for some people. But for me, the kind of person I am, I would much rather have less photos that you look at more 
than more photos that are just they mean as you say they mean nothing yeah i'm the youngest of three so i think i think there's about three photos of me up till the time i'm about 10 (laughs) whereas um whereas i think like like kids now probably have like thousands of photos of them taken every day in don't they and also there's this sorry (laughs) i don't know if you can hear what's going on outside sorry um but also there's like I think this thing of people putting their children on social media, which I think is really weird, mm-hmm. uh, on Facebook and Instagram, it's their prerogative, but I'm like, the human rights of the child. Let's just talk, like, I know that if I was a kid, if my, you know, somebody showed a picture of me, um, sorry, uh, somebody showed a picture of me to somebody, you know, when I was little, I'd be a bit embarrassed or whatever, but I don't think my mum ever did really you know people just didn't do that oh look at it just didn't happen you were never in a situation where you're doing that but now this imagine back let's say in the 1980s your mum or your dad took loads of pictures of you all at a birthday party they're not going to stick them on the window are they for the street to see? <laughs> yeah. this yeah. was, was it, Billy's seventh birthday party who gives a fuck it's fine have a nice but you know but we live in this age now with Facebook and all these things where we have to project that we're great people or we live great lives or we eat the right food or we say the right things or I'm just like it's, I was asked to, I was on Radio Nottingham today and I was asked a question about lockdown and how was lockdown and, and it was really hard like so hard and I would see people doing all these creative things and doing amazing things with their kids and I'm like fucking hell I've hardly just got the fish finger sandwich on the table I can't cope I'm not coping very well so without being too negative um I do think that it was all run away with us a bit. And I think, you know, more time for the individual to put limits on ourselves, whether it's limiting how much caffeine we, you know, like, you know, like, oh, I'm feeling a bit jittery. Well, don't have another Coke. Don't have another cup of coffee after three. We can do that for ourselves. Come on, we're grown up. I should up now. I'm talking to you. Uh, I know it's a problem. That's what you're here for. It's great. I don't to talk talk a lot there. You get me, wind me up. I'm like a toy that you wind up and I... Let's talk about let's talk about harlots before we forget to talk oh, about yeah, harlots. Let's talk about harlots, yeah. So how did harlots come about? Is that an American British co-production? Mainly American. Uh, fascinating. So, you uh, monumental pictures, which is Deborah Haywood and Alison Owen, uh, are two women who've worked for you know their own film companies in the past, uh, Ruby Films and Working Title that they'd worked, and they came together to make their own film company and a film and TV company, which is Monumental Pictures. And they had Maura Buffini and Alison Newman. Now, Alison Newman is an actress, a brilliant actress. And Maura Buffini is an actress and playwright, brilliant, brilliant writer. Came up, you know, they came up with this idea for a show based on Harris's, you know, list of Covent Garden women, which is literally like the yellow pages of prostitutes back in the day. That's extraordinary, that. And And it's real, and it is real. And you can... Uh, read about all the different girls and what they did and so they came up with this idea of making like making stories about these women and their lives back in Soho so they uh, they they got a, a woman called Alison Carpenter who was working for Monumental to produce it they got Koki Giedroyk rubbish at her surname even though I've got Polish grandparents I can never get the Polish right um, to direct it and so you have this this show that was that is produced written by directed by starring women or all, all female show about our, you know the business of sex um and it was commissioned by hulu who 
were doing Handmaid's, Handmaid's Tale at the time. And so we were side by side with that. And ITV Global, I don't know, they were doing something funny with the channel where they were launching it as a something else. And I don't know, this was three years ago. Um, so it was meant to be this big flagship show for ITV something. Anyway, ITV changed their tax. I think the guy left the company that was something or other. And so Hulu just had it out there. And it was massive, absolutely massive. Same viewers, same amount of viewers as A Handmaid's Tale. It was loved over there. And I did obviously a lot of press and da 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 da. And I'm at, when I'm in the States and I'll be in a cafe with my family and they'll, I'll start laughing. I've had people go, oh my God, that's Margaret Wells' laugh. And they'll come out and they'll go, where is she? Where is she? And they'll go, oh. And I'll go, so you literally knew me from my laugh? And they say, yeah, because you've got the same laugh as Margaret, um, which is really nice. So it was huge. That suggests that the laughs are genuine. The laughs are very genuine. And I'm not very good at acting a laugh. I can't laugh. It's like when I get an audition and it says, you know, and Penelope cries. I'm like, I can't bloody cry. How do you cry? I can't just cry. So I'll just, just perform the scene as I interpret it. And I just say, listen, the tears aren't going to come unless they're real, unless I'm feeling it in that moment. And um, same with the laughter, if it com you know, it's always my, my laugh. Um, maybe I'm a bit of a shit actress, really, just a bit more Sammy Morton. Um, but yeah, then luckily, BBC have bought it and it's going to be on the British Dilly. So I'm really, really, really happy that normal it's people... Started. It's already started. Yeah, it's on the bloody telly and normal people can watch it rather than <laughs> having to pay some weird channels that I couldn't watch it in the UK because it was on something I don't know what it was on but you had to subscribe to it can't remember what it was called and I couldn't I just couldn't subscribe to it stars stars, stars. Yeah. how I couldn't even get it yeah so none of my family saw it no one bloody saw it but now they can so I'm really happy nobody saw it in the UK that's what I meant in the obviously in the states it's major but... so what was your like at what point did you get involved in the project then Right in the early days. Right, I so just as it was all four minutes. I think it was an offer to Helena Bonham Carter, my role. And she said no. And my agent went, have you thought about Sammy Morton? And they might have thought I was too young because there's a good while between. I mean, I'm, you know, not that, I think, 10 years between us or something. I don't know. And they were like, well, is she, would she, is she a bit young for this role? Um, and I chatted with them and I think it was fine. They were like, oh, that's interesting. And then, and then I think, I don't know, then it just worked out, so. And it's you and Leslie Manville, isn't it? You're sort of two yeah. opposing houses. A bit like, it's a bit like the gang, so the way that we were playing it and the way that the show is, is imagine gangsters, right? So you've got yeah. two bosses of two rival families and it's like the Sopranos in that way. And so Margaret Wells is like, she's, she's worked her way up to being a boss from the bottom and whereas Leslie Manville is already, you know, she's been the Don for a very, very long time. So it's like it's a bit of that rivalry, but not so much rivalry as injustice, like getting revenge on someone. And it's funny, isn't it? Because at the start of the first episode, it says like there's, is it one in five women at the time involved in sex work, which seems an extraordinary kind of huge number that you sort of sort of slightly unthinkable. But it's also about how sort of powerful they are, aren't they, amongst their, amongst sort of society and how they can kind of interact with these sort of huge kind of highfalutin people in, in London at the time. 
that happens today. Look at the Jeffrey Epstein scandal. Look at the proof yeah. of what's going on. Sex across the board and the exploitation of women and girls and children, men, male as well, has always been rife in society. Always. And so that's what that's about. And that's what the justice is in regards to Margaret Wells's character wanting to get revenge on the person that exploited her when she was 10. But going back, I did a film called I Am Kirsty that was recently BAFTA nominated for, and that was a, a Channel 4 film. Now, hold on. I forgot what I was saying, but I'm going to come back to it. Um, yeah, I Am Kirsty, which was about a woman today, in today's society, that uh, is forced to sell her body because she can't pay, you know, she can't feed her kids. So prostitution, whether you're selling yourself with webcams or, you know, on the street corner or whatever, or any form of kind of selling your body images or whatever, sadly, is, has just gone through the roof, especially with lockdown, especially with everyone being, being made redundant, unemployed, the complication of even trying to get benefits. Um, but yeah, so I'm just going back to Harlow, I'm really, really excited, really excited that it's going to be on BBC Two, no, it's on BBC Two at 9pm on Wednesdays. BBC Two at 9pm on Wednesdays, and the whole of the first season is available to watch on iPlayer. Yeah. Uh, three seasons. I just binged it the other night because I'd not seen it. What do you mean? You've never seen it? Oh, I did a bit. Like, I went to a screening and I, I had a few too many red wines. <laughs> I hate watching quite it. involved in it. We were like, I wonder what's going to happen next. I, did, I forgot all the storylines. I was like, oh, it's actually really good. I was really, like, great. <laughs> You know, really gripped. Do you find it easy watching yourself? Hate it. I can't. I've not seen any of The Walking Dead. I have to see bits to do ADR where you're doing the voice. You know, the, the sound after it's been a bit messed up on the day. Yeah. Um, I hate it. I can't stand it. So there's lots of things I've never seen. For years, I didn't see anything, and then my husband, who was then my boyfriend years ago, said, "You've done some really good stuff, Sam. You might just want to watch some of it." So we did. We watched some. I was like, "That's all right." But I can't. It's me. I can't. I don't like my, I've got a scar where I fell down the stairs and it looks like I got a hair lip. And then I've got another scar where my nose was broken. I've got another scar where I fell down the stairs where I thought I could fly. And I've got yeah. goofy teeth because I've sucked my thumb. I'm 43 and I've sucked my thumb on my life. And I'm like, I just see the faults. Do you know what I mean? And so I can't look at it often and go, oh, that's good or whatever. Cause I'm like, I guess that's the curse of being in lots of good stuff, though. Because if you've been in loads of good stuff, you're not going to be able to get to see a bunch of good stuff. Or if you'd just made terrible things, it would be fine if you just missed it. Oh, you see, but now you've got to now you've got to go back and watch this stuff. So I would say, so you you were nominated for an Oscar. Yeah, twice. Oh, was it twice? What was it? What were they both for? Oh, I can't remember. Um, Sweet and Lowdown was one, wasn't it? Lowdown and in America, that was it. The other in America, it was a while ago. Yeah. Right, Is, right, right. What's that like? What, what, how do you feel and what happened? I think at the time, I just had my baby. She was like six weeks old and the Golden Globe Awards had, had happened before and I couldn't go. And you just, you don't, I was just so in love with my baby and being so happy to have had a baby. I, I wasn't really taking it all in. It's now when I look back and I go, that was really cool, you know, because... I, th I think a lot of those things are really, they've become like branded. So when I first went to the BAFTAs with someone else, I wasn't nominated, I went with someone else on there to like, we'll go to the BAFTAs. Um, it was a private affair in a room, round tables, everyone getting hammered, smoking, 
people like you saw people that you like really looked up to just letting their hair down being amongst their contemporaries it wasn't like orange sponsors the back you know the and it was just called the BAFTAs it wasn't the British Academy Awards it was just just the BAFTAs but it was still important it was at the Dorchester and it was like it was so fancy but now everything's a brand and everything has a you know I mean it's exploited to to the ninth degree or whatever the phrase is the you know and um and like well, I don't know um so you know that's what it's become about so I, I was lucky enough to be just on the cusp of seeing the, how they used to rock these things uh before it got a bit commercialized I suppose and the world of the brand took over yeah you were lucky I went to the BAFTAs and we weren't allowed to go to the toilet because it would be there would be an empty seat when they were filming it it's rubbish you are joking it was um but at the Oscars they have seat fillers yeah, I think there were seat, there were there were seat fillers, but we also it's kind of like you get there, and um, you know it's like canapes and champagne and stuff at the reception. You go up the red carpet, and then you sit in a in your seat for four hours, and you're not allowed drinks or food. You've got like a bottle of water. I couldn't get into the Oscars even though I was nominated because I'd lost my ticket. I lost my ticket. You know, as a girl, you've got your handbag and you've got your, I've got like my lippy and my whatever. I think I was, I was breastfeeding at the time and, and my daughter was sharing a caravan with Brad Pitt and Erica Badu um, because I needed somewhere private to feed her. And um, anyway, I'd, I'd been, I'd lost my, my ticket anyway. So that was a faff getting in. Um, but when you were nominated? Yeah. Could have said, I am, I am the Oscars. <laughs> yeah, imagine. Oh, it was, yeah. And also, it's like, you know, it's just, I think the Oscars, because it's America, they do things a bit bigger. And so it was a bit, it was exciting. You know, it is exciting. And it's, it's um, you know, I think for some reason, it, you know, it's, it's, it's the Academy, they're your peers, you know, they've, they've given you a bit of a nod and that's nice. But did, it, but did it ever feel like an ambition fulfilled or were you ever someone growing up? No, 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 no. When I was little, or I tell you what I did have an ambition about was, so silly. I wanted Madonna to foster me. <laughs> it could <laughs> happen. Well, I'm a bit old now, but that was literally my dream growing up. I tried to get Michael Elphick to foster me on Boone, but that looked a bit weird. I was chatting to him and I don't think he was, um, he was like, yeah, I'll do you know, <laughs> <laughs> Monday the car thief coming up. Um, so no, I didn't really think like that. I did want to have, um, I did know I wanted to be successful though in something. Um, I wanted to get out of where I lived. I wanted to have a nicer life, um, but it didn't necessarily mean statues. And I didn't even know what the Oscars was as a kid. Do you know what I mean? You don't, you know, I knew I wanted to be an actress though, definitely. Or prime minister. And you could still do that? Well, I think evidently so. Yeah. I just, I've got a bit of a natural <laughs> It's more apparent than ever that if you want to do it, you can probably do it. There was Kanye West wanting to run as yeah, he's a pre uh, president now, or he's running for president. Mm -hmm. I think he'll be better than who they've got. <laughs> <laughs> I, think they, I think they share a lot of the same uh, beliefs, don't they? It's um, yeah, I'm not. Oh, let's not. We've done we've done quite well. We've not talked about him for two hours. It's good. Absolutely fucked. Anyway, anyway. Yes. Um, we should um, uh, play the game, Nathaniel. Yes, we've got a game to play now, Samantha. And this game is called Better or Worse. And you have to say whether the next person 
is better or worse than the person before based entirely on my own opinion to score points. I don't, okay, but I might not know the people are. You should know. Hopefully you'll know. You should know, I think. Oh, okay. in with... Sorry if I don't know anyone. That's all right. Mick Hucknall. Mick Hucknall simply read... Is Mick Jagger better or worse than Mick Hucknall? Better. Mick Jagger's better. Better. Is David Bowie better or worse than Mick Jagger? Better. That's really weird. Better. They're so different. I can't answer. They're just totally <laughs> different. That's the game, Samantha. Better. He's better. He oh. is better. Burn. <laughs> <laughs> better or worse? <laughs> what did you say? A flag. A flag. A flag. David Byrne. Oh, David Byrne. Part of force is in. He's a bit up. Worse. Is David Byrne better than a flag? Better than David Bowie. (laughs) No, he's worse. Is David Byrne better than a flag? I I thought you said flag. I would say. I think that's so different. I can't answer that. Worse. That's that's like saying, is a tomato. That's the game. Dead. It's the game, Smith. Never had this much resistance, all right? <laughs> Play the game. <laughs> Based on my opinion, so it's fine. You can... Okay, Michael, is David Byrne better than David Bowie? No. Worse. Correct. Is David Beckham better than David Byrne? No. Correct. Is David Lynch better than David Beckham? Yeah. 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 So you do know the game. Is David Attenborough better than David Lynch? Yes. Yeah. I would say no, but I can see why... Whoa! Yeah! I have learned so much about spiders and all the stuff on the planet. I can't... They're just... They're, 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 they're high they're, card. Possibly set. No, you can't get out of it with this oh. high card. You're wrong, Nathaniel. Lynch, though. David Lynch. Yeah, David Lynch! Has educated us, but David Attenborough spent the last ninety years of his life teaching us all about nature and life and all the rest of it. He's educated the planet. Not having it. He's not made some sort of like weird films. Prince Harry is he worse than David Attenborough? Yeah, he's worse. Worse, yeah. Is Debbie Harry better than Prince Harry? Yes. Yes. Is Jackie Chan better than Debbie Harry? No. 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 Is Jackie Collins better or worse? Than <laughs> <laughs> Collins. I like Jackie Collins, but I'm going to say she's better than Jackie Chan. That's no, not worse. She is worse than Jackie That's Chan. That's an eight. It's a high score. Eight? Was that eight? That's an eight. That's an eight. So you scored eight, which means that you are not as good as Jen Brister and Jason Manfred with ten, or Ken Cheng, Harry Hill, Luke Morley with nine. But you are as good as Susie Dent and Magical Bones. I like Susie Dent. I'm I'm happy with that. Yeah. And you're better than James King, Henry Normal and Johnny Vegas with seven. Well, but Johnny Vegas was in the Libertine with me and Johnny Depp. There you go. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, The Man in the Man. I bet. Was it it fun to make? Oh, yeah. Johnny Depp is just incredible, funny, kind, and jo- we just had the time of our lives making that film. Yeah. It was, it was incredible. 
Yeah. I think I remember hearing that everyone got on really well, right? And, and I think they're like good pals, aren't they still? Yeah, but also Johnny's just so kind and, you know, he's really good in it, actually. You know, like, he's, actually, he's really good in it. And, you know, obviously it was like for all of us, it was a bit daunting because it's doing restoration and it's yeah. John Malkovich. You know what I mean, it's like I wasn't that nervous working with Johnny Depp because he but he's amazing. But he, he looks like, a, you know, I thought, oh, he seems like a nice guy. Um, and he is amazing. Um <clears throat> excuse me so yeah but we had fun doing that with johnny and i was like in awe because it was johnny vegas do you know what i mean so yeah, yeah. glad yeah, i scored an eight over johnny yeah you're, well, you're better than johnny vegas um he only scored seven um right don't go anywhere but we are going to wrap up the show um so samantha uh, thank you so much for coming on uh, what a pleasure what a pleasure to talk to you it's been lovely talking to you uh Congratulations with everything you've achieved. And um, Harlots is on uh, BBC Two at, what, did, what time did we say it was? Nine, nine, nine o'clock. Nine o'clock. On Wednesdays. Um, so thank you for coming on our show. Welcome to the clubhouse. Uh, that's, uh, I've been Nick Helm. Uh, this has been the third of Metcalf. We've been talking to Samantha Morton. And that's Fan Club. Thank you. Thank you.